And let's just talk about film just for a tiny, itty bitty second. Rolling, take one. Rolling, take one. Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And we've got quite a show for you today. We'll talk about a new old emulsion we've got for you. We'll dig into a few Depression era photographers. We're even giving a call to Texas photographer Kat Swansea. And we've got some more good news for you. We've also got some answering machine messages about people's first film cameras. But first, Vanya. Yes. How the hell are you? Uh, hanging in there just like everybody else. I mean, yeah. let's be real. It's been pretty rough without being able to surf. I've been having full struggles with myself. <laughs> it sucks because the county north and south of me can surf, but LA County cannot surf. And I'm trying to do the right thing and not go bother anybody else's lineup. Sure. Because I'm a fucking good person. <laughs> <laughs> you are. And that's got to take a lot of, oh, God, I want to like, oh, my God, you're staying home. It's so brave. But <laughs> it's kind of cool. I mean, you got to do it. You know, uh, where you live has a different population density than where somebody else lives. Absolutely. I do live in a very populated area. So it makes sense to keep the beaches closed. Now, that being said, um, we've been having red tide. Yeah. For the past week or two. So everywhere on social media, you see like everybody taking pictures of the glowy waves, which are great. But yesterday we took a drive to go just drive by and see it. Yeah. And there were like 200 cars and they just decided to use the second lane as like, because there's no parking. They just used it for parking. And there were just cars and cars and cars of people watching the glow wave. <laughs> But they were in their cars, right? I mean, there were people on the beach, there were people walking okay. on the street, there were people everywhere. And I was like, oh my god. I mean, this basically, it looked like a normal day. So it was, it was kind of interesting to see that. Like, oh shit. Yeah. I will not miss when it goes back to normal as far as driving anywhere goes. I'll just leave it at that. It's really nice to drive in a city right now. It really is. So <laughs> how have you been? How is my lovely friend from the north doing? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's still March. I think it is March 86th or something. I've been handling it okay. I'm, I'm, oh God, I've always been kind of able to just sit here and do nothing. I've been watching a lot of gangster movies from the 30s, which isn't an abnormal thing for me. I've been testing some film, not an abnormal thing. I've been taking long ass walks, which is kind of abnormal. I bought a bike. It's just fucking weird. So I haven't, I haven't ridden a bike in 15 years, but I've heard it's a lot like riding a bike. So I should be okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes I write the jokes. No, it's great. So are you going to get like a bike rack? So you have that like bike on the top of your car all awkwardly like standing up straight like a ghost bike? No, I'm going to have the bike on the back of my hatchback. And I have some places that I'm planning on riding. The trails in Washington are now opened up. You lucky sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> they still don't want you to travel too far. Uh, and then if you do, they want you to social distance. But if you've seen my photography, I've been doing that since forever. I don't like, it sounds horrible to say I don't like being around people because that's not completely true. No, I mean, you photograph in a certain way and yeah. that means no people. Like I don't generally. If I go to a trailhead and there's another car there, I get, I sink down a little bit inside. Like, oh no, I might see somebody here. I don't want to see the people here. That reminds me of that time we were in Yellowstone 
and we went to the um, prison pools. Yeah. And we're standing on the boardwalk and I was like, this would be like a really interesting tilt picture where you could see like the boardwalk on the other side and people walking across it. Do you remember that? I do. I do remember that. It would be. I would like to do that again if possible. I'm sure I'm sure I'll get the opportunity of having people walk through frame. So I mean, yeah, people are, are more than happy to do that for you. <laughs> so I social distance anyway, which I know is a lot of a lot of people do say that. But I mean, my photography bears it out. I've got like a decade's worth of photography where people don't exist in my world. I'm excited to be able to get back out to the emptiness where there's nobody there. Because when I go walking in a city, I'm surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. And it's neat in Seattle to walk by somebody and say hi, and they say hi back to you. It's a rare thing uh, in Seattle. But it's nice that we are doing that now. And maybe that will be one of the things that sticks after the virus is gone. That's because they're all transplanted from Los Angeles. <laughs> I mean, I, I smile a lot and I laugh a lot. Obviously, you guys know that. It has been very interesting to be like going into a store if I had to and wearing a mask and then smiling and then realizing no one can see you smiling. You're just looking at them. <laughs> you have to smile with your eyes. Oh, gosh. Okay, so we have some really good news. Uh, do you guys remember the slow meow? Yeah, you probably I'm do. I'm sure they do. It did sell out really quick, but that was um, an old Soviet microfilm. It was Tasma McRat 200. So we sort of have something very similar. So like the cousin to that and... We're going to be calling it the Fuzzy Perito. We are. Yeah, it is Svima MZ3 and Svima and Tasma are somewhat related companies. There's a weird Soviet-based history there, which we will not get into. Uh, there seems to be a disagreement over like what originally this film was meant to do, whether it was like a duplicating film or I don't know, probably that, or maybe a microfilm. If you liked Slow Meow and only wish that it could be a little dreamier, we have got the emulsion for you and Fuzzy Perito. There's uh, maybe no anti-halation layer on this, and so... <laughs> When you take a picture of a darker scene and there's like a light thing in it, that light thing will glow. And we'll post a lot of example photos of this. I really like it. It's a fun, fun emulsion. I think you will like it too. Yeah, we've tested a few rolls of this. How many rolls have you tested? I've gone through quite a number in the testing. I've gone through two rolls of not testing, just pleasure shooting. And I really, really like this emulsion. And I guess, you know, I've said before, I'm kind of off 35 quite a bit. But Mm -hmm. it's these weirdo emulsions that kind of keep me, you know, kind of hooked into 35. I really like this. It gets really, I don't want to say contrasty, but really sharp in the darks. And like I said, it, it blows out the highlights. So you do have to take that into account. You're, if you take a, like a landscape, your sky is going to be white and glowy. So mm-hmm. this isn't a good landscape film. It's a good film for shooting down. It's a good sad film. Where if you're <laughs> shooting, if you're shooting, if you're looking down at the ground and you're like, oh, I like that ceramic chicken I see sitting in a wooden wheelbarrow. Shoot it, because I did. <laughs> and the, the ceramic chicken will take on like a real crisp life of its own. And then some weird highlights over in the corner will explode. It's fun it's a really really fun film the the lights and darks play so interestingly together Mm -hmm. i fucking love it so we definitely aren't the only people offering this emulsion but for some reason or another our shoots around 12 iso i actually did shoot it at six at some point 12 iso seems a little limiting but on a sunny 16 sort of day you'd shoot this at one one hundredth of a second with an aperture of 5.6 three stops lower than 100 iso so i definitely think there is some play here too i 
I shot a roll at 6 ISO, and you can see some of those images probably in our show notes, I'm assuming. We're going to be offering it in a three-pack, and it's going to be an affordable price, so you definitely have room to experiment. So if you want to maybe even like go 25, why not? We can have some good results at 25, I think, on a sunny day especially. Mm-hmm. So, And d- developing this is actually pretty easy too. There's no weird developer you need. You just need HC-110, which if you're shooting old film anyway, you should just be using this or at least have it in your arsenal yes for the fuzz for the fuzz purr which is what we're calling it for short fuzz purr <laughs> it's adorable you'll have to use it's kind of a weird dilution that i didn't use prior to this called dilution h and if you use hc 110 it's basically you're using half the amount of the regular chemical than you normally would but you can figure all that out it's one plus 62 you do this with normal agitation for nine minutes and you're done that's it it's just a nine minute dev it's wonderful this doesn't do really well in stand development it might be tempting for some reason to just let it sit there for 60 minutes but you'll definitely get better results uh, with this formula so oh yes and it and it uh, fixes like any normal film like i said earlier the film will come in three packs it'll be in eric's etsy store for about 18 dollars. each roll will have at least 24 frames on it but eric rolls these so they're more like 30 and that's about what like six bucks a roll that is six bucks a roll yeah so yeah. that isn't too bad you will also throw in some stickers postcards and my favorite we have all the lens little <laughs> buttons. They're the best. <laughs> they are. I love them so much. So there's one caveat to this film, and it's is like kind of really important. More than any film that I've come across, this one is subject to some major light piping issues. The slow meow is also subject to them, but this one's maybe a little bit more. So basically, load in the dimmest light possible. Light yeah. piping isn't exactly like opening your camera up on a sunny day, but basically the light kind of travels along the the mylar film base, kind of like a fiber optic cable. So you'll get a little bit of hazing on the first few images. So again, just load your film in very subdued light. So we'll have links to this in the show notes and we can you can check out our IG. I love this film. Vanya, you seem to really dig it as well. There's only so many times people want to hear me say it's amazing, right? <laughs> it's incredible. It's amazing. It's the best film ever. <laughs> uh, go on. So go ahead and buy it from us. Thank you. Bye. All right, enough about all of that. It's time for the answering machine. I really like this question. Uh, We asked listeners, what was your first film camera? And we definitely got a bunch of messages and we are going to play them all because they're short enough. So let's go for it. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hello, Vanya and Eric. Dan here at Daniel Novak Photo. Uh, my first camera was a Smyrna 8M. It was a uh, Soviet camera, uh, a plastic fantastic uh, with uh, no bells and whistles. Uh, I got it from uh, my dad in uh, seventh grade, and uh, you know it had an ISO and uh, or, or a DIN dial, and an aperture setting on the front of the lens, and then a shutter speed on a you know, uh, dial around the lens. Uh, it just had a few settings from sun to cloud. And, uh, you know, the only meter I ever used with it was uh, the Sunny 16 rule. And I got some uh, nice memories on it, uh, despite how crappy it was. And you know what? Now you're kind of tempting me to to buy one of these. Unfortunately, I don't have the one I, I originally got. Cheers. Keep up a great podcast. Bye. 
Have you ever used <laughs> one of these? No, I haven't. I'm tr- I was looking at an image of them right now. I'm not seeing it. Wait, hold on. So while you're looking that up, I will tell you my quick story about a Smina 8M. I've had two of them. Oh. Real quick story about the Smina 8M is I was hiking and there was this huge waterfall and I was taking a bunch of pictures of the waterfall and I put the camera down to take another picture with another camera and I kicked the camera off the ledge and it tumbled, tumbled, tumbled into the water, down the waterfall, into the plunge pool. So I thought, I need this camera. I need to get it. And so I scurried and climbed and scratched and wriggled down this cliff. And at the bottom of it, at the bottom of the plunge pool, in the water, just floating there, looking up at me, was my little Smina 8M. And I was like, oh my god, my camera! And so I picked it up, and I put it up to my ear, and I tested the shutter, and click, 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 it worked. I was like, oh my god, my camera works after jumping down a waterfall and plunging into the plunge pool and being soaked in water. And then I took the last two pictures on the film roll, and, and I rewound it, and it was fine, it was dry, I don't know why. And then I loaded up with more film, and after drying out overnight, and... It worked. It worked for the next two or three rolls. And when I got home, the camera broke because it still is, at the end of the day, a, a shitty Soviet camera from the 80s. Jumping Jesus on a pogo stick. <laughs> my first camera was also the first camera to take a picture of me. My father had purchased a Kodak Retina Reflex 3 the year before I was born and used it to take all of my baby pictures and pictures of me growing up. And then when I was a teenager, he'd long since moved on to a modern Minolta setup. And when I was in high school, he handed me the Retina Reflex and said, go take pictures. Uh, This is Anthony Rue, Kino underscore Pravda on Instagram. That's amazing. I love that. Actually, uh, the the Kodak Reflex was the same camera that Frank Herzog used in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, before he went to to Leica, I'm assuming. I don't know. Hey, Vanya and Eric, it's Bill 2 again. My first film camera was a Minolta Dynex 3000 when I was in high school. It was bought for me. The first film camera I bought for myself, the camera that started my film renaissance was the Holger 120, and that was in about 2009. It was the camera that brought me back to film. This is a theme we're going to be hearing. I think so, which yeah. is great. Holga did kind of bring people back in a lot of ways, and that's that's awesome. Yes. I I would I think they're good cameras for for that yeah. purpose. I was leaving my late night job in downtown LA when someone tried to mug me. Unfortunately for them, I was bigger than they were, and it kind of turned into a reverse mugging. I ended up with a bag of loot, which included a Nikermat FTN. I wonder what happened. He probably scared them off and they dropped whatever they had been carrying around all day. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty well documented that the Nikermat is the mugger's choice when it comes to cameras. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So my first film camera, I'm going to start with when I returned to film, not when I originally started shooting, I purchased an Olympus OM-1, which I absolutely love, and I also now have an OM-2. I've never had one. I see them all the time, and I'm like, do I need another SLR? (laughs) Generally, the answer is no. (laughs) Probably not, except honestly, I always look at the, um, the F1 just because of that. It's kind of got that same exacta type of um, setup where you can, you know, take the little prism off. Yeah, I've, I looked into those. If I would do to go to any reliable 35 millimeter, I might go with the F1. But as we know, I don't like reliable 35 millimeters. No, you don't. I remember my family used to own a 110 camera. So I can't say that that was my first camera. It was sort of like the family camera. 
Then when I went to Desert Storm, I had the idea of buying several disposable cameras, and of course there's a story behind that. But my very first owned <laughs> film camera was, I think it was a Canon ELF APS waterproof sports camera. Yeah, it spent more time in the shop than anything else. Very disappointed. I actually have one of these. Of course you do. Can I show it to you? It's an audio podcast, so I don't see why not. Yes, I'm totally going to show it to you. You're going to have to bear with me. I got it for a dollar. <laughs> oh, no. It and looks, it's tiny. It is tiny. That's why I, I wanted to get it, because it was so tiny. Yeah, but you need the APS film for it, right? Yeah, and I actually do have a couple rolls of that. Okay. So, I mean, if I really wanted to, I could... Hey, guys. This is uh, David uh, Ortega at Curly Pangling on Instagram. But, uh, yeah, my first camera, I would say, would be my Minolta SRT-102. And it's kind of funny because I didn't want to get like any of the other, like the 101 or the 100. And I like spent like some time looking up like SLRs and stuff. And like I wanted an all manual one, like with somewhat fully featured for the time. That's awesome. That's a great camera too. I haven't used that. I've used it in a Minolta X something and I really liked it. Minolta's a great camera. Yeah, they are. Hi, this is Julian. Julian Watley IV. Julian Watley the fourth uh, on Instagram. My first film camera was a Canon AE-1 with a 50mm f1.8 lens. This would have been acquired sometime in 1977 and was my only film camera, for shooting stills anyway, that I'd have for the next 30 years. I stuck with it all that time because I had this idea that the photographer was more important than the camera. So I trained myself to make the best possible pictures with the equipment that I had. I think this discipline served me once I became a professional cinematographer because I had learned to count on my own skill and my own aesthetic sensibility to make great looking images and not depend on the equipment to do the work for me. Yes, that I agree with that. I definitely think that it should not matter really at the end of the day what camera that you use. I have a Canon AE-1 and I uh, actually gave it to Marley and that's her actual first camera. Aww. And her first very, <laughs> very first role with it is still inside the camera and she's only shot like seven images. <laughs> <laughs> She'll get around to it. To counter that, I like having a variety of cameras. Oh, for sure. I see them as well, you have your film choice, and you have your lens choice and all photographers are, are cool with that. So mm -hmm. why is the line drawn at camera choice then. Well, I've got a camera choice. If I want to shoot a scene and I want to get two different looks at it, I can't do that with one camera, even mm -hmm. with a bunch of different lenses, even with different emulsions. I do carry various cameras for that reason. It's like using different brushes when you paint. You can you can paint with just one brush, but you're going to get one look. And so I, for my own style, I like having various cameras to use. My very first film camera was a Leica 3F, which was in quite good shape and somewhat magical. That was camera that I had for a long time and really enjoyed, but my favorite first camera, and I think it qualifies, was Mamiya C220 in medium format. And that one is the one I used most of all. And both of those I got when I was 14, 15. Well, as I've always said, you never count your first Leica. That's your, <laughs> your first pancake. <laughs> 
Which came first, the Leica or the Mamiya? I guess the Leica, but he really liked the Mamiya too. Okay, fair enough. I didn't own my first film camera because it was a high school yearbook camera, and this was in 96, and we had old Canons probably, I think, metal body. We loaded our own film. We processed our own film. It was awesome. That's kind of how I got started. I think it's great when you can take a class and they have everything there for you to use. Because a lot of people don't have cameras. I think it's neat that she counts the camera that they gave her to use in school, her first film camera. I think that's neat. Yeah, Because it's not about owning it, it's about using it. Yeah. And that's really cool. Well, and she learned. And she learned on it, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's important. Yeah. Hey, Eric and Vanya, it's Will. My first film camera, I believe, was a Fisher-Price 110 format camera. And that spawned my lifelong love of 110 film. That is amazing. It, it is. It is. He's so happy. <laughs> he's, I'm just, he is. He's, he's just such a happy, well, he sounds like such a happy guy. Him using a Fisher-Price 110, one of the blue ones, he needs to do that. I don't know if he does still. Will, if you still have your Fisher-Price 110, you need to shoot with it. And I hope you do. That's a zine right there. Boom. Fisher-Price. Hey y'all, it's Nick Gravity Train on Instagram. My first first camera was almost certainly this blue plastic 110 camera that I had when I was like seven, and I've actually still got some pictures that I remember taking with it, which is pretty cool. But in a lot of ways my first camera was also an Olympus 35RC that belonged to my grandfather and that he used to take a lot of my baby pictures. He gave it to me several years ago, and that's really the thing that got me back into film photography for the first time in a long time. So yeah, I think that's my answer. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm wondering what the blue 110 was. I'm assuming it was like some kind of like Keystone or something, right? I'm betting it was a Fisher Price. (laughs) Possibly. I bet it was. It's really cool that his, you know, his grandfather like had saved this camera and then gave it to him. I love that. When you can like have a camera in your hand, you're like, oh my gosh, like this camera took a lot of the memories that I've seen in photo albums and things like that. Yeah. For my like family history. That's. That's really cool. uh, I'm a sucker for that shit. (laughs) Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Hannah Grace. Unless you count disposables, I had a little 35 millimeter. Can't even remember what it was because it was so long ago. But I do remember for a while (laughs) I shot black and white film that was C41 process. And I'm not sure why or where we got it from, but I remember being in middle school or high school and shooting this weird film on this camera that was a hand-me-down so cute. <laughs> so cute. So it'd be interesting to see what she hands down to her little baby when the time's right uh, in a year or two, right? And that's when you start them, start them young. <laughs> exactly. The black and white uh, C41 film is something that I've been kind of playing a little around a little bit with. I've mm-hmm. kind of taken a shine to it. Yeah, I have one more roll left that we got from um, Glass Key Photo. Yeah, I've got, I think, both my rolls from that. So if you've got some of this uh, black and white C41 film floating around, you're kind of like, I don't really want to use this. And it's in 120. Send it my way. (laughs) Not 35. Give it to me only if it's 120. You know, I'm picky. Hi, this is Pat McDonald. Uh, I go by Medicine Blue on Instagram. And my first camera was a Pentax K1000 that I rented in 1991 for my my college. Yeah, my first photo class. So I had that for two semesters. And funny enough, I'm still shooting with a Pentax K1000. I love that. Yep. 
I might as well see. I, I have a history with the, with the K1000, but very cool that you're still shooting with it. That's really cool. Yeah. And that he counts his first as also a camera he didn't own. Yeah. So very cool. Hello, Jonas, a.k.a. Colomantorn here. And yeah, first camera. I mean, besides the parents' Polaroid and using a rangefinder camera 10 centimeters from Lego, Lego builds, it was probably my Holga that got me into all this mess. <laughs> Uh, this was when I realized that a picture can be more than just documenting something happening. It can be art in itself and stuff. Yeah, okay, peace out. We're seeing again the Holga as a, I was going to say a come to Jesus moment, but I think I like the, the Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Or <laughs> Saul on the road to Damascus moment for the picky guys out there who really care about that stuff. And I think it's, I think that's the case for a lot of people. Where they, mm-hmm. they were kind of like, well, I shot film for a little bit, and then I kind of got away from it. And then the Holga came out, and I was like, you know what? I could do that. And this beaming light came down, and it said, you are now named Paul. Shoot the Holga. Hi, Eric and Vanya. My name is Dean Lestoria, and I'm calling from Herzogville. And um, sometimes I'm on Instagram as Nagelgazer. My first camera was the excitingly named Kodak X15, which, well, was a 126 cartridge camera. It was still a good camera. The first day I got it, my parents took me down to the beach on an English bay, and a sailboat sank, and the hovercraft brought the people in, and my dad took the people to the hospital, and he was a hero. And it's, it's one of my three good memories of my... F- I'm going to phone my my therapist now thanks love your show <laughs> so dean um you were probably responsible for a sailboating accident <laughs> just thought you should know that <laughs> i'm glad you took advantage of the chaos and destruction you've caused but some tough facts to face do you have 126 cartridges who me yeah yeah i've got three of them sitting right here behind me why i'm just wondering when you're gonna we use one of them i don't have any 126 cameras so never are you sure about that yep you keep thinking that you gave me a 126 camera, and you didn't. I don't know who you gave it to, but you did not give the 126 what camera to me. What did I give to you? I don't know. What is it? I don't know what you're talking about, because you never gave I'm me- talking about the one that has a little the stylus that's missing. That's a 127. Well, Okay, well, I guess we better answer that question for ourselves. Vanya, what was your first film camera? It was a Minolta XGSE that my mom gave me. It was hers. My mom was super very organized, and it came with a case with a slew of (laughs) telephoto lenses, all sorts of stuff that I didn't really, like, know what to do with. Uh, For the most part, I used the fixed 50 millimeter lens. That was my go-to favorite one. Everybody in the 80s had, like, these really long telephoto zoom lenses. (laughs) Was that one of those? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. I still have it. (laughs) Oh, cool. Um, There's a little bit of fungus in it, but... Only a little. I've thought of taking it out and shooting with it and seeing what happens. Might be kind of fun. You should do that. Yeah, why not? I mean, I think I've talked about this before and like how like the camera had died. That was the horse? Yeah, it got smashed by a horse. Yeah. And that was like in 2009. Horses hate Minolta's. They're blood enemies. I guess so. (laughs) Well, the interesting thing is where that camera died, I went and tested the um, fuzzy Perito in the same spot. Wish around. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I I guess I forgot to tell you You never told me that. 
Yeah, so the pictures, I don't know if I, I put the horse photos in the test shots that I sent you. Was it the same horse? No, I think I think that horse has gone to greener pastures. Did you make reason? sure of it after the Minolta incident? No, it's, I didn't did do you anything kill this to the horse. horse? God, we have someone I sinking a, a sailboat. We've got Vanya killing horses. <laughs> no, I did not. Jesus. No. Yeah, so enough about the broken camera. That was my first camera. I thought one thing that was really cool and also another thing that I look for when I find cameras at thrift stores and wherever I find them, uh, I like going through the bags and finding all sorts of silly little things like the lens tissue paper or the little liquid. I don't even know what's in it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> nothing Kodak liquid that is, I guess, supposed to, you can wet your lenses with it. I Sure. I don't know. The little brush, you know, to get the, yes, those <laughs> with the little dusty thingies. Yeah. Those are fun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my mom had all of those silly accessories. Of course. And it seems like everybody else did and no one used them because all those bottles are always still full when I find them. Uh, one thing that I really thought was neat was there was some paperwork in the bag and it had the day that my mom purchased the camera, where she purchased it, and then it said her full name. And it was like when she was with my dad still. So it was the first time I ever saw her with um, the same last name as me. And I thought that was kind of cool. Cool. Also, I maybe I should call my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. So I didn't get back into film with a Holga. But when that broke, I took a break from film photography for a while. Yeah. And uh, I ended up coming across a Minolta Hymatic for like five bucks or something. And that's what kind of got me back doing film again. That's and so I just cool. went straight to like, I'm just going to develop this. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. I think that's why I have a little bit of a soft spot for the Minolta Hymatic. I still shoot with it. As you should. They're good cameras. I shot with one last week. It's a good camera. You did. I did. Okay. So. Yes. I'm sure you're going to have some long drawn out story. So let's let's get this going. God, why? <laughs> so, I mean, I've got three answers for this. <laughs> oh, what a surprise. <laughs> so my first was a gray Kodak Instamatic 110 camera. That was my mom's. I think it was kind of the family 110 as well. Uh, but they got something else and I and they let me use it when we went to Florida in 83 or something. I've got photos I took with this camera there of Cape Canaveral. And I think there's some stuff from Disney World. Typical kid stuff. I took some weird artsy photos that uh, artsy for an eight year old. But no, fuck it. Artsy. Artsy photos that my parents were very like, why did you take a picture of this? You're wasting film <laughs> but they saw that i had a love for photography and so they inflicted another kodak instamatic 110 on me but at the same time my dad picked up a k1000 for himself this is the one that i learned on the k1000 is in my opinion the best camera to learn on hands down it taught me how to uh, set my aperture and the shutter speed using the through the lens meter and you had to get the little little needle in between the plus and the minus there are no numbers in there you just you just flick switches until you got it right in the middle so it was yes or no it was yes or no with a weird gray shade of maybe uh, but it, it, it taught you that, but it also taught you that cameras can be a real pain in the ass. See, the way to turn off the meter and to not run down the batteries was to just cover the lens. There was no on-off switch for this. <laughs> so you forget your lens cover. Well, you, you now have run down your battery. And the way to lock the shutter button so that you wouldn't accidentally take a bunch of photos with your elbow every few minutes was 
simply not there. There was no way to lock the shutter. Well, like the early Spotmatics, they had a little little switch that you could flick there from like the late 60s. That was a feature then. But the 80s K1000s, no, no such feature at all. So annoying. It's like the calculators. I just want to turn it off. Yeah, just fucking turn (laughs) off. But learning on this, while it is a good camera, and I think everybody should at least shoot it once or twice, it really makes you appreciate your next camera. Unless your next camera was a Holga, which mine was. See, I'm just like you. Not you, but you. (laughs) So in this episode, we're going to give a call to Kat Swansea. You may remember her from the second issue of the All Through a Lens zine, not quite related to the author lens podcast but kind of especially now so let's give her a call hello hello (laughs) this is kat swansea she grew up in a small texas town outside of houston but now calls austin home with her 35 millimeter canon she explores her small town roots capturing them in vivid color how are you? I'm good. How are y'all doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, so, Eric, are you there? I'm here. Is my audio okay? Yeah, it is. It was a little low earlier. It was low earlier, but it sounds a little better now. See? Told you. Well, I don't disbelieve you. I'm just... <laughs> I'm sorry, Eric. I guess I'm just really loud today. Yeah, today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really loud day for you, Vanya. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess we shall start. What do you think? Yeah, let's start. Okay. and So the question we asked listeners was, what was your first film camera? So what was yours? Um, my first film camera was a Canon Rebel K2. I got it when I was 16, and I still shoot with it all the time. Oh, cool. We've seen a lot of miles together. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That is amazing that you're still shooting with it, too. That's great. Yeah, I love it. It was was my first, and it's kind of my baby. So it's always in my camera bag everywhere I go. Oh, cool. So you carry it with you pretty much all the time. I mean, I don't always shoot with it, but I I do always carry it with me just in case I need, like, a backup camera. There are definitely times when I'm, like, shooting a roll of film, but I stumble upon something and I'm like this would look so much better on a different roll of film and I'll just load it up in the rebel yep it tags along with me almost everywhere I go besides work (laughs) (laughs) about a year ago was when um, actually a little bit more than a year ago is when I did the author lens zine issue two and you had an article in there yeah. So what have you been doing since then? I still shoot film all the time. I did take a little break last year. Um, I went through like some personal stuff and just my finances weren't really in order. But I'm still always out roaming around Texas and photographing small towns. But I have been branching out into other states. I visited New Mexico and Arizona last year. So I'm super excited to continue to explore other places and um, see what else the rest of the country has to offer. And not, not just Texas all the time (laughs) (laughs) branching out branching out yeah (laughs) spreading my wings (laughs) so besides traveling has anything else changed as far as like your style or approach to photography in the past year i think 
I'd say for the most part, my style has probably stayed the same. However, I have started focusing on the details a bit more. I'll always love those roadside shots that get the whole view, but sometimes there's just so much more to see. You know, a lot of my photography excursions are day trips where I have like 10 to 15 towns to see in one day. Wow. Yeah. But I've been trying to stop and smell the roses a bit more, I guess. So maybe instead of just getting that like holistic view of those old gas pumps, like actually taking a minute to walk up to them and catch some of those details that can really breathe a little bit more life into my photos. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So your photos, from what I've seen anywhere, are, are generally void of people completely. Yeah. But you still end up being able to show like a real sense of humanity. So is this something you like consciously strive for? Or is just like, this is going to sound cheesy. I'm very sorry about this in advance. <laughs> but is, <laughs> is the humanity in Texas like the humidity so thick that it's impossible <laughs> to avoid? <laughs> I warned you. Yeah, I would say more often than not, there's definitely more than meets the eye in a lot of the small towns that I visit. There's a huge sense of community all across small town Texas. Everyone knows everyone and they're always looking out for each other in one way or another. So a lot of the places I photograph have been left unkept, but sometimes they sit directly next to the owner's home or maybe the building has been repurposed for something else. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of history like steeped in these communities. And while the buildings or homes are often not utilized, they're, you know, nostalgic for the people who still live there. So I guess to answer your question, I do intentionally leave people out of my photographs, but I also hope that I can capture and breathe life into the places that I visit. Do you know why you leave them out? I don't like photographing people. I feel awkward about it. Okay. It's uncomfortable for me. It's rare that I take a portrait of someone. In fact, like if I get asked to take a portrait of someone, I'm like, oh no, like you don't want me to do that. Or like I shoot film and they're not great for portraits, which is bullshit, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've been doing portraits just, on film for a while now. I've used that excuse a few times. <laughs> So we asked you to select a photo of yours and talk about the day that you took it. The camera, film, composition, choices you made and didn't make. So the photo that I selected was taken in Melvin, Texas. It's about 150 miles from where I live in Austin. And I shot it using my Canon AE-1 program on Portra 160. So Melvin's not considered a ghost town, though it has less than 200 active residents. So it was completely dead when I visited. Uh -huh. There's one active business off the main highway and there's a post office, but the rest of the town is completely empty and falling apart. And so the photo that I selected is actually of a playground, which the town is centered around. And the playground has a helicopter pad, which is super <laughs> unusual. I've never seen that in a small town before, but I'm gonna assume it's for if you get bit by a rattlesnake or something, because um, <laughs> Melvin's kind of on the cusp of like getting into I guess, West Texas, where rattlesnakes are pretty common. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I just I walked around the entire town photographing as I went along. And at one point, I looked up and just realized how lonely and isolated the town felt. There wasn't a soul in sight, but someone cares enough to like maintain this playground. And there's this big abandoned building in the background. And it just felt like a really nice touch to like really bring the photo home. And I also chose it because it just feels really different than most things that I typically photograph. I just really like it whenever I look at it. And it also makes me a little sad because it's a really cool town, and I, but I didn't see any children. So there's just like somebody mowing the grass at this playground every week and no one's really going. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a strange. What's pride? You know, you're taking yeah. pride in your town. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I see that a lot. I mean, I'll visit places where there's maybe one house for 100 miles. Everything that's along that stretch of highway is mowed or there's hay baled. People take a lot of pride in where they live. They don't always have the nicest things, but they take care of what they have. And I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> So looking through your your feed on Instagram and all your photos, we're noticing that you shoot a bunch of different color films mostly. You do throw in some black and white here and there, mm-hmm. uh, especially lately. There's been a few. It's uh, a lot of it's Portra and Ektar. But lately you've been shooting stuff like Kodak Gold and Fuji Color 200. And like a lot of people will really stick to the professional films. But you've gone in an interesting direction with like the grocery store type films and the drugstore type films. Is there a decision mm-hmm. that you made there? Because that's really kind of cool. So truthfully, I didn't really have a choice. Um, Last year was a struggle for me, both personally and financially. So while Ektar and Portra are two of my favorite films, it just wasn't realistic to continue shooting them all the time. So rather than have to give up on going out to shoot film, which, you know, obviously is super important to me, I just made the choice to switch to budget films. Uh But truth be told, I've been really surprised by them every single time. I'll probably continue to shoot Kodak Gold, Fuji Color, Kodak Pro Image for like my normal weekend trips and save the more I guess, professional films like Ektar and Portra for my lengthier road trips. The cheaper films can really surprise you. Yeah. Sometimes I look at the photos and I don't have high expectations and then I'm like blown away. So when we look at your photos, we see that there's nothing really to date them sometimes. There's nothing modern really showing. So there's like no newer cars or buildings. And then obviously there's no people. Do you intentionally do that? Part of why I care so much about photographing rural communities is because it reminds me so much of home. Like time can truly stand still in rural America. And those are often things that I'm attracted to visually. So there are some modern conveniences in the towns that I visit, maybe a new gas station or some newer vehicles that sometimes get in my way when I'm trying to take a really cool photo. Um, But for the most part, many of the towns I visit are just completely devoid of people and look exactly like they did like 30 plus years ago. Even though I could not wait to get the hell out of a small town when I was growing up, it's crazy how, as I've gotten older, I spend almost every weekend going back to small towns. (laughs) Yes, I feel you there. I grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania, and I have this thing for just being in small towns. I live in Seattle now, and this is kind of the opposite of a small town. But being in them, there is like a sense of a sense of these are my people. Yeah. I still feel like a small town girl mm-hmm. living in a lonely world. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I go to these small towns and um, they can tell that I live in the city. Yep. Like I feel like I've lost all of my small town charm. Um, so they can, they definitely look at me and they're like, you're not from around here. And a lot of them will say that to me. But it's strange <laughs> because I feel like I am at home and I feel like a sense of comfort about visiting a lot of these places where like nothing exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they ask you what you're doing there and you say you're, photog- you're photographing things, mm-hmm. do, do they seem surprised 
Sometimes they do. Sometimes they want to know how I found that town. Um, <laughs> fair. To sometimes, yeah, I mean, that is totally a fair question. Because uh, a lot of the places I visit don't even show up on Google Maps. Mm -hmm. um, I find them on like old railroad maps. Yep. So yeah, a lot of times they're like, how did you find us? Um, <laughs> only, only a handful of times I've had like a bad experience. Um, one time I had a gun pulled on me by a guy who thought I was the IRS. Uh, I had on shorts and a t-shirt about drinking beer. I'm like, I want to know what IRS agents are coming <laughs> and knock on your door because I want to party with them if they wear t-shirts <laughs> about drinking beer. <laughs> So for the last question, what we do is we kind of preview the question we're going to be asking listeners to call in about for the next episode. What we're asking them and you is kind of a, an odd question. Do you feel that your photos or a selection of your photos, at least like a series or something, do you feel that they tell a larger story? I think that what I hope for people to take away from my photos is that life does exist outside of what our version of normal is or whatever our comfort zone is, especially living in the city like most of us do. Life can be so fast paced at times, but there's like an entire part of the country that don't even have access to high speed Internet or things like Amazon Prime, which are things that like I take for granted every day. Yeah. And a lot of the people that I come across, they wake up every day, they work to make an honest living and they get by the best way that they can and they're holding on to what they have. Yeah. So sometimes it's hard as an outsider to come in, especially because at this point, like I have lived in the city for so long that most people would have never guessed that I grew up in a small town. But the conversations and the connections that I make with people have been super valuable and really helped me keep things in perspective. So I guess just to bring this full circle, I just hope that when people look at my photos, they just understand that there, there are so many people that are different than us and we don't always have access to them because they don't have the same like modern conveniences that we do. And it's easy to look at these things and just be like, you know, what a piece of crap. That house doesn't even have a roof or that truck is like broken down on the side of the road. But um, these things mean something to someone, even if they are abandoned, like there was life that existed there at some point. And I think that's what is really the most curious thing to me is thinking and imagining what life was like before something was just like left to waste away to the elements, I guess. Mm -hmm. hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that yeah. answered your no, question. No, it, it, it absolutely, absolutely does. Mm, it did. <laughs> well, Kat, it was super, super nice talking to you. This was really great. We'll definitely have to have you back on soon. Yes. Yeah, I would love that. And um, again, thank you guys so much for your time and for inviting me to do this. I had a blast. And um, <laughs> it was awesome getting to talk to you guys and also just getting to know y'all better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Take care. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. October 29th, 1929 is remembered in America as Black Tuesday. On this day, over 16 million shares were traded and billions of dollars were lost. The stock market crash was not the sole reason why the Great Depression happened, but it did accelerate the collapse, with banks failing and leaving about 15 million people unemployed by 1932. The crash came at a time of drought in the middle of the country. 
Farmers in places such as Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, and Colorado had overfarmed the once rich soil. What followed was a nightmare scene of massive dust storms that wiped out crops, animals, and forced family farmers, unable to pay their mortgages, to flee their farms. The president at the time, Herbert Hoover, did little to hold the effects of the Depression. And because of this, Americans elected Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932. He pledged to use the federal government to make lives better. He called this platform the New Deal. The veritable alphabet of federal social programs provided safety and stability for the American people. There was the CCC, the FSA, the WPA, the SSA, and the FDIC. But we'll be starting with the RA, the Resettlement Administration. To help face down the Depression after his election, President Roosevelt brought on his old economics professor, Rexford Tugwood, placing him at the helm of the Resettlement Administration. Founded in May of 1935, their mission was to resettle displaced and out-of-work families into newly created towns run by the federal government. Working under Tugwood was Roy Stryker, an economist who grew up on a ranch in Colorado. He was also a photographer. I know about pictures, said Stryker, recalling his youth. His family, like many in the late 1800s, had baskets and boxes of stereo cards. Stryker was fascinated with the stories they could tell and wanted to bring that to his new job in D.C. By the 1930s, cameras were getting smaller and much more portable. Gone were the days of glass plates and tintypes. Now we had film in both sheets and rolls. The cameras were handheld and a documentary movement was now emerging. Stryker was well aware of this movement and wanted to use it to help sell the Resettlement Administration and Roosevelt's New Deal in general. His boss, Rex Tugwood, knew that the press would be against them. He understood that the job of winning over the public would fall upon the media they produced in-house. He had envisioned posters, movies, radio broadcasts, as well as photographs and it was upon those that Stryker seized. There is a lower third, said Stryker, of the displaced farmers he wanted to show. There are human beings like the rest of us, their shoes a bit shabbier and their clothes a bit more holy and worn, but they are human beings. And this was his job, to show this widening yet almost forgotten class as human beings. To accomplish this, Stryker selected the first half-dozen photographers who he believed could make a dent in the world, as he said. Though we know of this Avengers-like assemblage largely because of their work during the Depression, most of them were established professional photographers prior to Stryker's mission. The early days of the project brought together Dorothea Lange, who ran a successful portrait studio in San Francisco. Arthur Rothstein, who was president of the Columbia University Photography Club and a star pupil of Stryker's. Uh, he was asked to set up the dark room at first, but eventually picked up a camera. There is Walker Evans, a well-known documentary photographer and a pal of Ernest Hemingway, as well as Carl Midens, a photojournalist for the Boston Globe, and Ben Sean, Evans' former roommate and a well-known painter. Evans was really pulling for this guy. There came at least 10 others, but these were the first, and these are the ones that we think of the most when it comes to Depression-era photographers. When they gathered in D.C., their mission wasn't exactly clear. They were to document the poor, but what? exactly did that mean? What the project meant was still up in the air. The reasons why the photographers agreed to the project were likely an array of thoughts. Some likely wanted recognition, some for some it was a steady paycheck, some obviously believed in the cause and wanted to help. But for all of them, it was just an arrangement of things. But what mattered was that Stryker got his team of photographers and they were ready to head out and begin. So what we're going to do here is we're going to highlight five of the photographers, the early ones. Yeah, ones that you 
definitely know the names. Know the names, you probably know the pictures, but let's give some yes. background here. The first one we're going to discuss is Dorothea Lang. Uh, she remained in California, where she captured what she later called an American exodus. Her photos taken between 1935 through 1939 document the influx of Americans fleeing the Dust Bowl for the promised land of the Golden State, California. She later ventured into Texas and Oklahoma, photographing what was left behind and how few remained. When we envision images of migrants traveling along Route 66, Grapes of Wrath style, largely we are envisioning and remembering her work. Yeah, and the photo you have for us today is what? Towards Los Angeles, California. So it's uh, two men walking with uh, luggage on a dirt road. I really like this photo a lot. Yeah, I do too. It has like an old billboard in it. And it says, next time, try the train. And has this guy sitting in a very cozy, I'm assuming first class train seat. And it says, relax, Southern Pacific. (laughs) (laughs) Which might have been fucking annoying to see when you are walking down the side of a highway, probably in fairly warm conditions wearing long sleeve jeans and a hat. Yeah, I mean, this was mid, mid-30s, and so mm-hmm. the depression was in, in going a pretty full scale at this point. The sign really makes the photo. This would be an interesting photo without the sign, but mm-hmm. the sign is that, that juxtaposition that Lang I didn't actually do a lot of. That was kind of a Walker Evans sort of thing, but she was kind of, uh, you know what, I'm going to say that Walker Evans was channeling his Dorothea Lang when he would do stuff like this. You think so? I think so. If so, if you want to see this photo as well, we have it in the show notes. We'll have it on our Instagram account and we'll have on our website. You'll be able to find this photo if you need to. And you should. Read along with us. Our next photographer is Arthur Rothstein. He was the youngest of them and he was only 20 years old when he left D.C. for Oklahoma and the Dakotas. He was told to explore dust storms and the drought in the West and the agency's attempts at relief. The documentary, The Plow That Broke the Plains, was incredibly influential to the young Rothstein and often his photos have both an amateur and cinematic look to them. Rothstein would soon be incredibly well-traveled. He went from Oklahoma to the Dakotas, to Kansas, to Nebraska, to Oregon, to Washington, back to the Dakotas in Montana, then back to Oregon, then back to North Dakota, and then to Minnesota with about as many states in between. He got himself into a bit of bad press with a cow skull. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit next time. But he kind of had a a bad name for himself for quite a while. So, But this young photographer, he was probably, and because of that, he was probably more maligned than any of the others from this area. But looking now at his photos, most are really striking. They've got this this youthful energy to them. There's a movement and there's there's a bit of an emotion. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So the photo we decided to show was... It's called Heavy Black Clouds of Dust Rising Over the Texas Panhandle. Texas. Okay. <laughs> uh, he didn't get into titles. He got into descriptions. <laughs> well, and very descriptive. This is a photo that you've probably seen. Uh, it is of a lone car on a highway with a ominous black dust storm hovering behind it. It's super contrasty and more than likely what you have seen is the print. This is mm-hmm. interesting. Rothstein was first and foremost a darkroom technician. So he knew how to print. That was his thing. So he, yeah. like most photographers of the, of the era, shot for the print. But he really had the print in mind when he was shooting. I think I mentioned this before when we were actually like gathering the pictures to you. You tried not to shoot cars and things like this. It would be a good photo with 
without the car, but I definitely think that the car gives you a scale of how large this, like how massive this storm was behind the car. So it's a little bit more dramatic in it that is. way. And you know, that, I mean, the lights are on, you know, it's not just parked there. It's driving. There's No, it is driving. Yeah, there's Probably as fast as it could Pro- away from it. <laughs> you would think so. Yeah, you would think so. Though, I mean, if you're from the area, dust storms were kind of normal and you would drive through a good chunk of them. Some of them were too mm-hmm. dark that you couldn't. But yeah, some of them you could. It's a... Uh, I mean, anybody from that area, anybody's driven through that area in the spring, especially. But these pictures weren't for those living there. These pictures were for the rest of the American public who didn't know what dust storms were and couldn't really comprehend it. And so you're looking at a very exaggerated photo of a dust storm, but it had the effect on the public that it was intended to have, which was, holy shit, we're all going to die. Okay, next photographer is Walker Evans. So Walker Evans worked for Stryker and the FSA on and off between 1935 and 1937. Like other photographers, Stryker assigned Evans work, but he had two stipulations. First, he had to be the one to print his own work, and as far as what he'd capture with his camera, he would only document. This is pure record, not propaganda, he told the director of the FSA. He was first sent to West Virginia and Pennsylvania. Wait, Pennsylvania? <laughs> yes. Are you saying that because your name's Vanya? Uh, yeah, it's spelled the same, so it should be pronounced the same, I would assume, right? Yeah, that's how words work. <laughs> But soon would spend the bulk of his time in the southeastern states, such as Alabama, Mississippi, and the Carolinas. His work up north was largely uninteresting. However, in the south was where he shined. So the photo that we have for Evans, he titled Floyd Burroughs, Alabama Sharecropper. There's not much of a background on Burroughs that I could find, but Walker Evans took a ton of photos of Burroughs and Burroughs' family and the houses and all of that. And we could really do a whole course on how to photograph one single place by looking at maybe the 40 or 50 shots that Walker Evans took of him. But this is the one that stuck. This is the one that they picked to show the example of that part of his work. Well, he looks young, but he definitely looks like he's seen some shit. You know, he has a weathered look and he hasn't shaved in a week or two. He has tattered clothes and he looks like he's been overworked probably trying to feed his family. Yeah, it looks like he has seen some shit. Now, there are other photos of him where he doesn't look quite as rugged, but clearly, I think he cleaned up for those photos. This photo seems like a very candid, very true-to-life, true-to-form photo. Yeah, it's candid. His eyes definitely tell a story, you know? They almost, like, pierce you a little bit. It's a little, it's a little hard. Um, for those of us who have shot 4x5, and this is shot, obviously shot in a 4x5, you can see the outline of the holder. You notice that there's a little bit of a light leak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, isn't that nice? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Even then. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit better. <laughs> All right, yeah. we are going to go on to Carl Maidens. First and foremost, he was a journalist. And I don't mean a photojournalist. He was a journalist. He had shot for the federal government in the years before Stryker, and he brought with him a cold and artistic eye. So he did do a little bit of photojournalism, but mostly he was a, a writer. But uh, So he was assigned mostly to the mid-Atlantic states, and there Maiden shot the slums. Uh, he photographed what others were just simply not really willing to capture or see. He used a 35 millimeter where a lot of people used 4x5, and that gave him easy access to his locations, kind of hide his camera a bit. But he approached his subjects as an artist, for kind of for better or for worse. He photographed toilets in various states of filth, kitchens and bedrooms in disarray and atop each other, kind of kitchens inside bedrooms and bedrooms inside kitchens. He shot row homes and company housing. He focused on patterns and shadows a lot. Maidens also photographed workers and sometimes uh, took some portraits. Uh, he would also capture really intimate street scenes. His his work was so varied, it's, it's kind of hard to get a good example of it in just one photo. So the photo that, that 
I chose here was one that he titled, Damned if we'll work for what they pay folks hereabouts, Crittenden County, Arkansas, cotton workers on the road, carrying all they possess in the world. It's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. Why don't you describe the photo for us? So it's a man and a woman walking down the road because you can kind of get the emotion on their face. Uh, the guy definitely seems kind of pissed probably on what it takes to, to get paid for, for work. Well, I would assume the quote was, was by him. It's in definitely. quotes, you know, he's not going to work here because he's not getting paid enough. And that's, yeah. that's time to move on. The woman's face in the book that, that we're going to be talking about um, there's a really close crop of the couple. And the woman mm-hmm. is, I don't want to say smiling. She's not smiling, but there's just a certain look. Her eyes seem to be darting to the left. or well, Yeah, they do. She's looking at something or she's looking away at, or she's maybe she's embarrassed. Who knows? Yeah, it's hard to tell. There is motion in their step. Yes, I like that. It's a really beautiful photo. And it's a sad photo, but it, it is there's a, there's a real beauty to it. Okay, and for our final photographer that we'll be talking about, at least in this episode, um, He has a little bit more of a diverse backstory than the earlier FSA photographers, Ben Sean. Prior to seriously picking up a camera, Sean tried his hand at European modern art. Thinking his own work unoriginal, he returned to the States and made 29 gouache paintings of the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, displaying them the same year. This led to him being Diego Rivera's assistant for the Rockefeller Center mural. After a few more odd little failures, his roommate, which so happens to be Walker Evans, got him a job with the FSA in 1938. He was placed as almost an afterthought in Ohio. There, Sean had a bit of a trick. He would point his 35 millimeter at his assistant, but because he had an angle finder, he could sneak more candid photos of the mundanities of life in the Midwestern towns. Sean eventually warmed to the idea of normal lenses and photographing people. Moving his assignments to the South, he was able to photograph scenes, especially those in the Black community, more intimately than other FSA photographers. Yeah, so the photo we've got, he titled, Watching Football Game, Star City, West Virginia. And like a lot of the other photographers, he took a whole series of these and selected this one. I love all these photos because everybody's wearing like amazing hats. (laughs) They they were really big on hats. Yeah, in the 1930s, it was was a hat decade. But also too, just like, and you know this about me, like people that are smoking, like I have this thing about like people, like this guy in the image on the far left, he is a little, he has like a look like what? We're looking at the game kind of thing, but he's blowing smoke out of his mouth and has a cigarette in his hand. I don't know. I just... I'm into it. I like that. Well, the photo was taken to capture that. Yes. Because the two other people, there's three people in the photo. Two of them are looking through the fence and one is looking at the camera, blowing smoke out of his mouth. There is, I mean, there's that that cliche of, you know, someone being a dick and blowing smoke in your face. That's the, I guess, the feeling that uh, Sean was capturing here of kind of like, almost like, stop taking my picture. Also, another thing, the way that he used his angle finder, it seemed like Sean kind of started with that like maybe not extremely comfortable shooting these scenes and then using that angle finder to kind of like get the those the photos that he actually wanted to capture walker evans got him into photography maybe two or three years before he got on the road shooting professionally so he was a new photographer he was a painter he wasn't used to photographing people and he seemed to be a little shy of it and i i I get that i'm i am the same way Mm mm-hmm and shooting around towns and stuff with like a normal camera that you hold up to your face and push a button, everybody knows what you're doing. 
And it's kind of more in your face. Like if you're holding your camera a little lower or like away from somebody, that seems like a little bit more comfortable. Now, it really seems invasive when someone puts a camera up to their face and snaps because you can't see their face. It, it becomes less personal for, mm -hmm. the, for the subject. But if you've got the camera at your hip and you're looking through a viewfinder, looking down through a viewfinder, well, now they generally don't even know you're taking a picture. Again, for better or for worse. And that's what Sean did for a good chunk of his beginnings, but then he later graduated to normal lenses. So, uh, so there are definitely other like photographers, right? Are you stepping on my lines? Yeah. Okay. I'm a stepping. So those are the five photographers that we decided to cover, but there were definitely others. Uh, people like Jack Delano, Gordon Parks, Marjorie Collins, Esther Bubbly, Marion Post Walcott, and I would love to do a whole show on Marion Post Walcott. And a, a slew of, I mean, we could do shows on all of these photographers and maybe we will eventually get around to them. <laughs> like a year's worth of podcasting there it is yeah yeah we've got time we've got podcasts <laughs> we definitely do some of these walker evans probably had the largest reach followed by dorothea lang last episode we discussed frank herzog's color photography that was clearly inspired by evans and by the end of the whole new deal era Roy Stryker's photographers had taken this is crazy together they had taken 250,000 photographs and of these, uh, now roughly half survive. So I think 175,000 of them survive. And of these, all 175,000 negatives are scanned and are available on the Library of Congress website. And we'll have many links for that. Even the ones that they didn't want to print, the ones they didn't want to print, they would put a paper punch hole through the negative so that you can't print it. Even those are scanned and are available online for us to view. So clearly each of these photographers had a profound impact on those they captured as well as upon the general public. These photographs formed our memory of the Great Depression. They molded the way we see our history and have likely changed the way we all shoot. So normally, at this point in the episode, we would go into zine reviews, and we both have gotten a couple of zines to review, and we'll review those in the next episode. But one thing we wanted to do first was the last episode, we're jumping around in time a lot here, and I apologize, but the last episode we asked our listeners to send in good news, and we got so much good news after the cutoff that we just couldn't let it slide. We needed to share the good news because, you know, it's rough times right now, and we all need a little bit of good news. And we just yeah, talked absolutely. about the and we and we just talked about the depression for about twenty minutes. So <laughs> let's have some good news. Yes, let's do that. Hey, you guys, Ricardo here at neat.slice.off.time on Instagram. First time calling. I've listened for quite a while, but on the last episode, you mentioned Seattle Filmworks and all the stocks they used, like Ferrania, and I was like, "What's Ferrania?" So I looked for it and completely fell in love with it. Like. Um, Fellini used it and the Sika used it and I was like, okay, I need to get my hands on it. So I ordered three rolls and a bunch of stuff more online and <laughs> I really can't wait for it to get here. So that's my great news. Hope you guys are doing great. Peace. Have you been able to get any um, Ferrania yet? Oh, like the new black and white stuff? No. Yeah. No, I haven't. Uh, the, <sighs> yeah, I know. I don't know if he was talking about... Like ordering Ferrania, or he was talking about ordering uh, Seattle Filmworks off of eBay. But either way, he discovered a new emulsion new to him. Yeah. And that's awesome. That is such it, good news. It is. I did, for the very first time, process 
C41 in a makeshift darkroom in the world's tiniest bathroom in an Airbnb. And I am here to tell you all something very important. It was actually a hundred times easier than black and white. I wasn't even particularly fussy about the temperature. I know, this is shocking, but it's true. You can do it. Presuming, of course, that you can ever get the chemistry again. Thankfully, ECN2 is on the way from the very short distance of Seattle to Victoria, BC, where I happen to be, which apparently is going to take 10 days. I, well, I guess by now the ECN2 is there for him, and it could be there for you too. I've got the ECN kit still for sale. I don't know if there's a run on C41, and if there is, well, I got you covered with the ECN2 kits. Yay! Hi, my name's Matt. Uh, I was kind of out of uh, places to go take pictures, and then I discovered in eastern Ohio, the Ohio River Valley has a bunch of really cool uh, towns that are like this neat mix of like crumbling industrial uh, rust belt and like forgotten Appalachian extraction industry stuff. Really cool. It's like everything that catches my eye. Uh, that's actually where I'm driving right now. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my pictures will unfortunately still look the same, but what are you going to do? Eh. Uh, I'd also like to say I really like your podcast. You guys seem really cool. I don't know, sorry. Should have prepared for this better. Alright, see ya. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to live in Wheeling, oh, West Virginia, which is right along the Ohio River and it's part of the Rust Belt that he was talking about. And I'd go mm -hmm. up to Steubenville and uh was it New Cumberland or Cumberland? Um yeah, great places that I would love to photograph now. I wasn't photographing then. And yeah, it'd be kind of cool to, to hit that. So yeah, discovering a new place. Discovering a new place is the best feeling ever. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it, really <laughs> it, is. it so is because you just, you know, even here, like Los Angeles, like, what should I do? Go shoot the Venice boardwalk or the skate park in Venice or the Santa Monica Pier or the Venice sign or downtown LA? It's like, oh my God, <laughs> there's got to be something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here. Yeah, there's only so much you can shoot around where you're living with before you get kind of like a little tired of it i think at least for me no every i think everybody goes through that so yeah. when you discover a new place and you know it kind of recharges your batteries ugh, best feeling ever yeah. my film photography good news is that even though i've been laid off and i'm home all the time from quarantine i've found a way to shoot more film than maybe ever before by doing little distance portraits of people through FaceTime and Skype and things like that. I uh, use my cameras to take pictures of screens and direct them through a photo shoot and other than uh, oat milk quality videos sometimes. It's going really well and I'm super excited and I'm having a lot of fun and I have a lot of time during my day to do these now. So uh, thanks for getting rid of me, Job. Anyway, that's my good news. Jamie Maldonado, Jamie M Photo. Thanks. And that's one way to look at the positives of being laid off. And it's, I, I, I want to see some of these, these screen images, how he shot those. Yeah, I'm really curious as to how they look. And I don't know what oat milk quality is. You is know that... what? I don't want to know because I, I actually drink oat milk and I don't. <laughs> well, oat milk, I mean, that I... seems like a rabbit hole of like, oh, no, I'm, I'm getting the wrong one. There's like things in this that I shouldn't be <laughs> drinking. <laughs> 
But I mean, oat milk is kind of like considered like the the paramount of plant based milks, right? I guess. I like don't if know. someone said, like, man, your photography is fucking oat milk, I'd be like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Yo, hoy, hoy. This is El Gato Magnifico. I'm excited because I, my film photos from Hong Kong are being turned into a zine right now. I already worked on a practice scene to try to work out the kinks. It's been a year, and now it's finally coming together, and I'll be pushing both of those pretty soon. I really appreciate you guys' help and encouragement to make this happen. Oh, that's so great. That is I'm sorry. great. This is exciting. It is exciting. I want to see people doing zines. Now is a yeah. great time if you want to. I know. I'm hoping that we'll just get like a surge of zines, and we'll just have like zine reviews just for freaking... 30 episodes deep. Yes, just an entire episode of Zine Reviews would be, would be, well, that would be a lot. And that's about all the episode we have for you this week. But before we go, we need to remind you of two things. First, thing one is that the question for next week is, do you feel that your photos or a selection of your photos tell a larger story? We're not going to get too involved in what that means, but we'll let you do that. Do you think they do? And if they do, talk to us about it. Yes, and thing two, Fuzzy Perito. Yes, Fuzzy Perito is, by the time you're hearing this, available on the Etsy site. It's up there now. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail, and we're allthroughalens on Twitter. Vanya is Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag All Through Lens Podcast to be featured. We're going to start doing that again, right? I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I've been so busy quarantining. All right. <laughs> it's been really difficult. <laughs> we also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Like, and wherever the hell else you can find podcasts, subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so much for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. We love you. Uh, Vanya? Yes. You want to go and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go.